I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. More than a watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let us pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day to be able to worship and praise you, O God. And glorify your holy name as, as we come together, O Lord. I ask that you would just uh, use me, Lord. Let my thoughts be clear. Let my words be clear. And ultimately let what you want spoken to be spoken, O God. We pray for those listening to your words, Lord, that hearts and minds would be prepared to receive the word, Lord, that seeds will be planted and watered. We know it's you who give the increase, O Lord. Thank you for the fellowship that we have, the local church, O God, for the many blessings that you continuously pour upon us because you are good, Lord, even though we don't see them all, O Lord. And so we just thank you for your word. And we just praise you, O God, and ask all these things and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so there was a, a priest who, who was a fervent preacher, but he lacked faith and was growing miserable and miserable and miserable in his life. And the spark came when he was preaching to a prisoner. And when he was preaching to that prisoner, the prisoner ended up being converted. He preached the message of forgiveness. And when he saw that the man was converted and, and over time he was transformed, his friends also encouraged him to have faith, to expect transformation. And so that evening, him still being depressed and miserable, he unknowingly attended a meeting in Aldersgate, London. And he was listening to Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. It was being read and he heard it, and a dramatic change took place. And what he wrote in his journal was that he felt his heart being strangely warmed. He said, which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that had taken away my sins even mine, and he saved me from the law of sin and death. And so John Wesley would go on to be one of the greatest uh, evangelistic preachers, a fiery preacher where many will, will come to faith, but people don't know his struggles, people don't know how he failed in ministry beforehand. And I tell you this because even though it's a well-known story, a lot of people don't know the first part of the story and what happened prior that day how he went to St. Peter Cathedral. And upon walking in, he heard Psalms 130 being proclaimed. And in that psalm being proclaimed, a seed was planted because he knew it was the cry of his heart. All the failure in ministry, all his misery, all his depression, all his struggles, it was the cry of his heart. He was in the depths, and that's where we find ourselves today with the psalmist, in the depths. He says, I cry out of the depths to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. And so I want to go to Psalm 69 and, and read a couple verses so we can get a picture of what the depths are. 
right? It's other texts we can go to from Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah, Lamentations. But in Psalm 69, starting at verse 1, it says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the floods sweep over me. In verse 14, it says, Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. In Ezekiel 27, 34, it says, Now you are wrecked by the seas, the depths of the water. Your merchandise and all your crew in the mist have sunk with you. And so what's the purpose of these texts? We see the depths are a picture of water, water with no bottom. Waters that are chaotic, tumultuous, stormy, and violent, and enclosed in a blanket of darkness. And it's out of the depths of these that the psalmist is crying out to his covenant God, Yahweh, because he's feeling the heavy weight of his sin. We don't know what the sin is, but we know he's feeling the weight of it. He is overwhelmed into despair, and all he can do is cry to the Lord. To you, O Lord, do I cry. He doesn't try to save himself or remedy the situation. All he can do is call upon the Lord for him to give attention to his pleas, give attention to his cries for mercy. It was a similar situation with Jonah, who was called to, to preach and ran in the opposite direction the Lord called him to, to go. And so he was on a ship. It was stormy waters, the depths. And so subsequently, he was thrown over into the stormy sea and swallowed by a fish. And from the depths of the belly of the fish, Jonah said this, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. So similar to Jonah, the, the psalmist is helpless. He's in a place where only he can cry out to the Lord. That's all he can do. Crying and pleading for the Lord to give attention to his cries, specifically his pleas for mercy. How many of you have been to that place? How many of you have been to that place? The message titled, Hope of Forgiveness. And I say this because this is the first step to get to the hope of forgiveness. Right? You can't get on a path of forgiveness if you're not convicted about your sin. See, sin is a heavy weight, but do you feel that sin? And then the question must also be asked, how many of you do not feel the weight of your sin? To sin and not bother your conscience, to sin and not be convicted, to sin and not feel the weight. This won't lead you to the hope of forgiveness. And I say this so that you can be sober-minded in how you see things and so you can understand that conviction is a blessing. When the Holy Spirit comes in and convicts you of your sin, and even though he is sovereign and he controls the weight that you feel of that sin, he can alleviate it and he doesn't, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to know the Lord is allowing you to feel the weight of your sin. A godly conviction, not just sorrow over sin. I'm sorry that I got caught. 
I'm sorry that I feel the consequences. No, I'm truly convicted by my sin because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Have you been to that place? Have you been to the depths? Have you felt the weight of your sin? Do you feel the weight of it dragging you under the waters? And all you can do is cry out to the Lord for help. Lord, hear my voice. Hear my pleas for mercy. Save me, O Lord. You saw with John Wesley conversion and him hearing Psalm 130, in the midst of the brokenness of his life, he became aware of his sin. He was convicted of his sin. This is the cry of the psalmist. This is the cry of his heart. He knew the darkness that was in his heart. And the only one that could dispel that darkness is the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, with whom there is redemption. And so as that sit with you, the, the, the principle to understand, aside from conviction being a blessing, is that if you're not conscious of God, you won't be conscious of your sin. And if you're conscious of sin, that means you're not conscious of God. Take a look at your own life. Take a look at our culture. And you will see the evidence that where there's an absence of God, sin flourishes. And the most fearful thing is to not have an awareness of God and as a result, not have an awareness of your sin. To not think much about sin is to not think much about a savior because you don't think you need a savior. You don't think you need to be delivered. You got yourself in the depths of the water. So you don't cry out in desperation. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The blessing of conviction coming to the reality that you cannot save yourself. Specifically from a holy and righteous God. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Is it heavy upon your soul? Is it causing you to cry out to the Lord as a psalmist is crying out to the Lord? The first point, the blessing of conviction. And so as the psalmist is, is crying out, he continues in the next verse and he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Think about that. So we, we had a picture of, of the psalmist being brought out of these chaotic, tumultuous, stormy, violent, dark waters to the shore, standing at the foot of his master, cold, out of breath, weak, at his knees, and all he could say, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? He didn't say thank you, but he acknowledged his justice. He acknowledged the power of his master. Overwhelmed, weak, and out of breath, and he says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? This is the blessing of conviction, but it's also blessing in truth. Right? Because he's not only convicted about his sin, but now he's acknowledging the truth about his sin. And he knows that if God was to count his guilt against him and let him feel the full weight of his sin, he would be crushed. If God left him to the weight of his sin, it would drag him to the bottom of the ocean. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, who can stand? 
If God was to mark his iniquities, it would be no hope. See, what the psalmist is doing is recognizing God's justice. And if God dealt with him according to justice, he would get what he deserved. He wouldn't be able to stand and not just him. No man would be able to stand before a holy and righteous God who will pour out his wrath on sin, who hates sin. Yet the psalmist balances his justice with his mercy. Because he continues and say, but with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But why is God to be feared? Why is God to be feared? And we see it in a stanza right before it. Because with him, there is forgiveness. Think about that. He is the only one that can lift away the sin. He is the only one that can take away the guilt and the shame of sin. He is the only one that can wipe the record clean of sin. That's why he's to be feared. We fear the Lord because forgiveness is his prerogative. God is not under any obligation to forgive anybody. And the psalmist knows this. This is why he's balancing out his justice with his mercy. He's not just saying, oh, Lord, you will forgive. But he first acknowledged if you were to mark my iniquities because you are just God. Not only me, but nobody could stand. Knowing that what he deserved was not given and that what he didn't deserve was given. That's what the psalmist is recognizing, the mercy of God. Spurgeon said, none fear the Lord like those who have experienced forgiving love. And this is not a slavish fear, but an honor, a reverence, and a respect. God's love is all-encompassing, which means it's no sin that's too far from the reach of God's arm of forgiveness. Yet it's still up to God on whether he reaches that arm out. And the psalmist understands this. Again, this is why he's balancing his justice with his mercy. But there's another aspect to this fear. And we've seen it with the psalmist. It's the fact that forgiveness should encourage godliness. Forgiveness should encourage godliness. This this is the gist of what he's saying when when the Lord is to be feared because he forgives. See, if you remember the first two verses uh, uh, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when the psalmist was crying out, it was genuine. It was authentic. It wasn't mechanical. It wasn't manipulative. He wasn't saying the Lord has to forgive me because he's merciful. The Lord has to forgive me because he's gracious. No, the psalmist doesn't say that because he feels the weight of his sin. He feels a true conviction. It's genuine. That's why when he gets to verse 3, he acknowledges his justice and said, if God would have marked iniquities, he would not be able to stand. And you have to understand this because why I say that and continue to repeat that he's balancing out his justice with his mercy because it, are, it is those who assume the form of ungodliness and presume upon God's forgiveness. But not the psalmist. 
He's not like those that are thinking just because God is merciful and gracious, I can do whatever I want. Because God is merciful and gracious, he will forgive me. He has to forgive me. Thinking they can just presume upon God's forgiveness. They can live in sin and all they have to do is ask for forgiveness and boo, God can make the sin disappear. The psalmist is not presuming upon God's mercy. He's not presuming upon his forgiveness. These are the ones that are not truly convicted about their sin. They just want to be delivered from the consequences of sin, but not the sin itself. Not the psalmist. The psalmist wants to be delivered from the sin itself. And we will soon see why. You cannot think that you're forgiven because you don't feel conviction for your sin. You can't blame it on circumstances or situation. This circumstance or situation caused me to sin. This or that person caused me to sin. We try to make excuses thinking we can manipulate God or somehow move him to be merciful to us. This is why I'm continuing to point out the psalmist is not doing this. He is genuine in his conviction. He is genuine in acknowledging the truth about his sin. And so, again, he balances the justice of God with the mercy of God. He knows that God or forgiveness is God's prerogative. God is not to be presumed upon. He can't be manipulated. He cannot be mocked. God is not to be fooled. And the psalmist knows this. And all he can do is cry out, oh, Lord, hear my voice. And if you were to mark iniquities, no man would be able to stand. God is holy. He's righteous. Yes, he's gracious and he's merciful, but he's also holy and he's righteous. Knowing forgiveness is God's prerogative to cause us to fear him, to respect him, to serve him in love. And a response, right, of the psalmist, you can see it when he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. More than a watchman for the morning. And so he felt the conviction of his sin. He, he faced the truth about his sin, and now he's seeing the response in light of his sin. So now the psalmist's response is waiting on the Lord. But I, I want to ask you a question. If the psalmist has been forgiven, what is he waiting for? If the psalmist has been forgiven, then what is he waiting for? I wait for the Lord. What is he waiting for? And he tells us right there. I wait for the Lord. He is waiting for the Lord himself. He is waiting for the favorable presence and intimacy of God. See, he don't see forgiveness as a license to sin and just do whatever he wants. Because, again, God is merciful and gracious and he's, he, he forgives. 
But again, we see this man is genuine. This is true religion, what the theologians call it. Not because it's a real conviction. He's facing the truth about his sin. But now we see the response to his sin because instead of going to live out reckless, now he's waiting on the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. But now I'm waiting on your presence. The presence that I lost when I sinned. Because, see, when we sin, a separation occurs. If a wife sinned against a husband, a separation occurs. If a husband sins against a wife, a separation occurs. Can a wife forgive the husband? Of course. Can a husband forgive the wife? Of course. But here's the thing. That relationship will not immediately go back to exactly how it was before. So how much more would a holy and righteous God when you sin against him? Can he forgive you? Of course. Forgiveness is with the Lord. He's anxious to forgive. He's ready to forgive. And just like forgiveness is his prerogative, so is his presence. He don't owe you his intimacy. He don't owe you his favorable presence. He don't owe you the joy in your heart. He don't owe you the peace in your heart. He don't owe you the contentment that rests upon you before you sin. That's what the psalmist is doing. We see the genuineness of his crying out. We see the genuineness of him acknowledging the truth because now he's forgiven. And he said, Lord, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to wait on your presence. The intimacy I had before, I want it back. Does he lash out at God because he doesn't feel his presence? Does he lash out at God because he don't have the intimacy he had before? Does he blame God for withdrawing his presence? Does he turn inwardly? And fall into depression? No. Not at all. In his word, I hope. He's holding on to the promises of God. He's holding on to the word of God. And if you have been to the depths, when I asked in the beginning, then you know what I'm talking about here. And if I ask, have you been here? You should still be able to say yes. Because you know when you sin, the guilt and the shame of a separation comes. And that blanket of guilt and shame sits up on top of our souls. It sits up on top of your soul. It feels like your prayers haven't made it past the ceiling. You don't feel the presence of God. You don't feel the peace that you once had. It seems as God is far as from the east is from the west. His presence is nowhere near. But in those moments, what do you do? What do you do? Do you do what the psalmist does? Not only in asking for forgiveness, knowing God will forgive you, but, but do you wait on the Lord? Do you wait on the Lord? Because this, this is what I want to say. Forgiveness doesn't equal feelings. Forgiveness is not dependent upon feelings. The psalmist doesn't say, in my feelings, I hope. He says, in your word, I hope. In your promise, I hope. I remember listening to R.C. Sproul one time, and he was counseling a, a, a young lady that was wrestling with sin. And they, they've been through a few counseling sessions over and over, and, and uh, this lady was just struggling, just d- depression, just, you know, uh, uh, pessimistic. 
And, uh, and Sproul could not put his hand on what was going on. And so in asking a series of questions, he finally got to the root of the problem. When in one of the questions, she responded like this, Brother Sproul, I know the Lord has forgiven me, but I don't feel like he has forgiven me. And then R.C. Sproul had to explain to her that God's forgiveness don't rest on feelings, it rests on his promise. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You might not feel it, but trust that he has forgiven you because he said he will. And the psalmist knows this. And just as forgiveness, again, is God's prerogative, so is his favorable presence. Instead of lashing out, now the psalmist turns and waits. And he waits. But how does he wait? More than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. As the psalmist knows this, instead of allowing it to lead him to anxiety, he allows it to lead him to anticipation. It doesn't matter how he feels. He hoping in God's word. See, waiting is the fruit of hope. Hope is a confident expectation. If you confidently expecting something, or in this case, someone, you will wait. It's not mechanical. His soul, or a different translation, his whole being is waiting on the Lord. And so by him saying that and constantly repeating these words, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In this word, I hope. My soul waits. He's saying, I made up my mind. I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm not straying to the left or to the right. I'm not listening to the critics. I'm not listening to my flesh. They may be whispering, it might have been too bad this time. God is not coming. He might not have forgiven you. I'm not listening to that. I'm not waiting in anxiety, but in anticipation because I'm trusting his promises. I know he forgives and I know he will bring his presence in his due time. And he can do this because he's not hoping in himself. He's not hoping in his feelings. He's hoping in the word of God. He's hoping in the promises of God. And his anticipation is more than that of the watchman for the morning. When guards have stood duty all night, they exhausted, tired, fatigue is overtaking them, their bodies grow weary, their eyes are drooping. It builds an anticipation in them. And so they're looking. They're looking for the first beam of light that shoots forth from the sun that's rising. Because as soon as they see that beam of light, they know they're relieved of their duties. And I said in the beginning, out of the depths, we talked about it as a chaotic, dark, tumultuous, violent waters, but I also said that they were clothed in darkness. And that darkness represented the absence of God's presence. And so the psalmist was feeling the weight of his sin because God's presence was withdrawn. And I say that because now we get to where we at now where he's waiting on the Lord. He's waiting on that intimacy. And in the depths of that, the psalmist, like the watchman, waiting for the first beam of light, is waiting for the first beam of light from God's face. He knows as soon as he sees that beam of light, God's presence is coming. His intimacy is coming. That favorableness he was waiting on is coming. He's expecting it. He's waiting anxiously. 
This is faith. This is the godliness that is encouraged from forgiveness. Remember I said that? Like the psalmist, are you convicted about your sin? Have you faced the truth about your sin? And what is the response in light of those two things? Are you waiting? Trusting the Lord has forgiven and knowing he will bring his presence in due time. The psalmist continues, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The conviction of his sin, the truth about his sin, waiting on the Lord as a response. But this is not an idle waiting. It's an active waiting. That's what waiting means in the Bible. It means to actively wait on the Lord, not to be passive. He doesn't go hide somewhere. He doesn't seclude himself. So how is the psalmist actively waiting on the Lord after he felt convicted about his sin, after he faced the truth about his sin? Now he's waiting. He turns to the people and say, oh, Israel, oh, church, hope in the Lord like I'm hoping in the Lord because he forgives. So now he is evangelizing. This is the picture of waiting. And I didn't mention in the beginning that this is a psalm of ascent. Where Israel would go up a mountain three times a year when they had to go to Jerusalem. And so we see that the psalmist is literally living out this psalm of ascent. He started low, but now he has been brought high. He went from the depths to now he's going up the heights of the mountain. This is an act of waiting. He calls on those around him to trust in the Lord, to hope in the Lord. Not only is it forgiveness with the Lord, but it's steadfast love and it's plentiful redemption. And not only does the Lord forgive right now, is what he's saying. Not only does the Lord forgive right now, but he will redeem you in the future. He will redeem you in the future. He ultimately will deliver you from all your sins. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So the psalmist is not only displaying how we should wait on the Lord, but he's displaying how we should trust in his precious promises. Think about that, saints. Now he's encouraging the nation. Now he's encouraging the church to do the same thing he just did. If you're not feeling convicted about your sin, pray for that. So as we come to a close, he says, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And I want to answer the question of how will God redeem Israel from all her iniquities? He said he will redeem Israel. And in God's perfect timing, 
he sent forth his son. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He was obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And see, Jesus, he came low so that he can bring you up. He came to the depths so he can bring you to the top of the mountain. And all who trust in his name will be washed to their filthy stains through his shed blood on the cross. In Christ, there is redemption. In Christ, there is forgiveness of sin. This is the hope of forgiveness. See, if your trust, your reliance, your dependence is upon Christ alone, you're not only free from sin's power right now, because of forgiveness, but you will be free from sin's presence because of forgiveness. Think about that. If your faith is in Christ alone, right now in this moment, you have been delivered from the power of sin because of the forgiveness of God. That's the hope of forgiveness. And through that same forgiveness, when Christ comes back, he will deliver you from the very presence of sin. Oh, church, hope in the Lord. With him, there is steadfast love and redemption. God forgives. But if you don't know Jesus, if your trust is not in Jesus, then you have seen the reality of God's justice. And so, unfortunately, the if drops off for you. And when the Lord marks your iniquities you will not be able to stand. That's the bad news. You will have to feel the full weight of your sin. But praise be to God that the psalmist balanced out his justice with his mercy and said with the Lord, there is forgiveness. Yeah. Now there was forgiveness or it will be, but there is forgiveness. In this moment right now, if you repent, it's forgiveness if you turn to Christ. Yeah. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. You saw the psalmist didn't try to save himself. He didn't look to anybody else to save himself. He didn't try to remedy the situation. He simply called out to the Lord to hear his voice. Call out to the Lord. This is what the scripture says. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. But you, O God, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Daniel 9, 9 says, with our Lord, there is forgiveness. God is ready to forgive. This is the hope of forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and, and thank you and just give you all the glory and praise for who you are, oh God. Even as the psalmist recognized, help us know that you are holy and that you are righteous, oh God. And then if you did mark our iniquities, nobody could stand, oh God. The iniquities of our thoughts, our, our motives, our action, our words. But we also thank you for your mercy, oh God the innumerable amount of scriptures and promises that you're ready to forgive, that you uh, uh, abound in mercy and grace, steadfast love and faithfulness, O oh God. Have mercy upon us, O oh Lord. 
those who are truly saved, Lord, help us to, to see your mercy in light of your justice to not presume upon it. Let your forgiveness lead us to godliness and encourage godliness. To those who don't know you, Lord, I pray through your Holy Spirit you bring about a true conviction that they may call upon the name of Christ and be saved. To you alone be glory. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.